thankful to continue to preach through the letter of Ephesians. If you want to grab your Bibles and turn there with me, uh, we begin today into chapter 4. As we turn to chapter 4, we find ourselves now at the halfway point of this letter that Paul writes to the saints in the region of Ephesus. In the first half of the letter, Paul laid out some of the most precious and praiseworthy words of theology we see in Holy Scripture, including important emphasis on predestination, election, depravity, new birth, redemption, adoption, the work and power of the Holy Spirit, our position and identity in Christ, the unity of God's redeemed people from different tribes and nations, and most importantly, who God is and what God is due from His creation. One way to consider this turning point, the first half of Ephesians is focused on the work of God to choose and save and set apart His elect. The second half of the letter is focused on what we should do to honor God as his elect, his church, who have been saved, set apart, and sent out for his holy purposes. One of the big ways we see Paul shift in this focus is in the first half of the letter, Paul majored on indicative statements, which are statements of fact. In the second half, Paul will major on imperative statements which are commands to obey. In the 66 verses of Ephesians that we have studied so far, in the first three chapters, Paul only gave one imperative statement. It's found in Ephesians 2, verse 11, when he simply says to the listeners, the redeemed, remember. He commands them to remember. But starting here in chapter 4, verse 1 and onward, Paul is going to give us one command after another. My prayer for our church as we study the second half of Ephesians is that we are open and ready to receive what God has ordained for us to do. While Paul is God's ordained author of this letter, let us not forget it is God's word to his people. Paul is writing under the divine direction of the Holy Spirit. So disciples, church, let us come humble and hungry and ready to do what the Lord has commanded us. Look with me at today's passage. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 will be our focus. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. The first thing I want us to see in Paul's opening words here of chapter 4, when he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, Paul is not saying that he is a prisoner of the Lord. Like Jesus has trapped him in chains. No, if anything, Jesus frees us from our chains, and it is our joy to serve him as our master for the rest of our God-ordained lives. No, Paul literally means that he is in prison for the Lord. In other words, because he is in Christ, belongs to Christ, serves Christ, the call on his life has meant that he is now and currently in prison as he writes this letter. This is not new insight to us who are reading this letter, as Paul has already referred to himself as a prisoner in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. He opened chapter 3 with the same type of statement. We also read in Ephesians 3, verse 7 and 13, that Paul is suffering for the gospel and for his fellow Christians. See with me, church, then, why does Paul highlight his imprisonment and do it again? See with me that it's not for sympathy from his audience or in an attempt to add weight to what he's about to say. 
but instead his aim is to point out that he is thankful to be counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. We see this emphasis in Paul's words in his second letter to Timothy, among many other places in his writing. 2 Timothy 2.8-13, listen to Paul's words here. Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have denied him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let me read verse 11 through 12 through 13 again. I realize I, I had a slip of the tongue. Picking up at verse 11. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Amen? Oh, how we need this same mindset and purpose for our suffering in this life as we live for King Jesus. Paul goes so far to glory, to celebrate in his chains because he counts it as such an honor to serve Christ with his life. Think about that for a moment. For you. Is this true of you? Or when suffering comes, hardship comes, when it doesn't go your way, when injustice comes, are you quick to whine and complain and to moan and to cry? Church, when we get this, not only do you not complain about life not going the way you want, but you rejoice instead in all the ways that it is against you because you are so grounded in and satisfied in Christ and because it is your utter joy to serve Him with your days no matter what that means for your life. This is truly powerful. So I ask you again, is it true of you? Of you who belong to Christ? In case you're thinking this is unique of Paul, not truly attainable, or in any way normal for Christians to feel this way about their suffering or injustices, Paul's not alone in this, church. We see it time and time again in Scripture. I, I, I could spend all morning just going through biblical examples, but one of my favorites that I speak of often as it is just simple and so profound and powerful, is the testimony of the redeemed we see in Acts 5, 40-42. When they had called the apostles, they beat them. They charged them not to speak the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Oh, how I pray the Lord moves in each of us in such a way that we truly and authentically can get to this place of readiness, of embrace for whatever God might ordain for our lives as hard as it is, as against our fleshly desires as it is, as against our biggest hopes as it is, that in the end, our deepest heart's desire is to serve Him and to get to make much of His name. In this we rejoice. 
Now, after making this important declaration, we see what Paul commands the believers to do. Look with me at the next part of verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. First, Paul says, I urge you to walk. This is the imperative. This is the command. He's saying, based on all that God has done in you, and the fact that Christ is in you and at work in you, all of his emphasis of chapter 1 through 3, it's time for us to walk. Walk out what God has called and commissioned us and empowered us to do. Christian, do you wake up every morning in tune with the fact that you are under the authority of the king, that you belong to the king, and you are to do what he commands you to do with your days? Or do you wake up, Lord of your own life, and schedule, and money, and and family? See, when we get this, We won't even go to bed ill-prepared. We'll go to bed prayerful, thoughtful, planned, ready. We'll go to bed on time. Why? Because I want to wake up in time to, to maximize the day, to serve the Lord. Wake up in an attitude ready to say, today belongs to my Lord and I belong to Him. So I'm ready to do what He's commanded of me today. Men and women of God, there is a divine and holy reason God has given you another day to live. To live this life. Let us walk. Let us go to work, church. When Paul says we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, he's not saying so that we can prove our worthiness or merit to be saved. Let us be careful not to read that into what he says here. Why? Because he's already made it absolutely clear in this very letter and throughout Scripture, we are dead in our sin and have no ability to merit salvation, but we are saved by grace alone. We're not worthy of saving grace. Never will be. The opposite is true. It is only by God's grace that we can live worthy of the calling to which we've been called in Christ. To better understand Paul's emphasis, a better look at the Greek word that Paul uses here that our English translators say is the word worthy. A deeper dive into the original Greek word there means suitable, fitting, appropriate. This is Paul's way of saying that the output of our lives needs to match the input of the Lord. It needs to be fitting. It needs to be suitable. Again, this is not in relationship to what we've been given in grace, for that is a matching output we could never accomplish. I like what Dr. Lloyd-Jones says about it as it relates to the very turn in Paul's letter that we find ourselves in. He says this, The matching output in, is in relationship to the doctrinal input we have come to know. As the Lord informs and reforms us in sanctification and maturity in sound biblical doctrine, there should be an equal growing measure of obedience and Christian maturity. This is what Paul means by the word worthy. It's suitable, it's fitting. Paul would be in front of the line to rebuke men and women of our day who are good at growing in doctrine and knowledge. Maybe even good at telling others about it. But there is not 
practical maturing or evidence of the fruit of the Spirit and sanctification in you. The output's not matching the input. I can confidently say that at least in principle you agree with this. Even if you're struggling to live it out. Hopefully repentance follows if that's true. But you agree with the principle in that we expect more output, more spiritual maturity from an elder than we do from a group leader. And we expect more maturity from a group leader or a ministry leader than we do from a brand new Christian. What can't happen is that we are lackadaisical about growing in sound doctrine. And when we are growing in our study and knowledge of God's truths, the other thing that shouldn't happen is that we are slow to live out what we're taking in. This is Paul's lead-in as he's about to talk a lot about what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Much of what's coming in the verses and chapters ahead builds on this point. So see with me the weight of the first three chapters as the input, as the spiritual truths, as the doctrine that sets the table for the output in the Christian life that we are to obey and live out in the next three chapters. There's two types of calling for which we often speak in Christian circles. Let's take a quick second to address that. There is a calling unto salvation, unto being in Christ, alive in Christ. And that calling should produce maturity and sanctification to which this applies. The the word church, ecclesia, means the called out ones. They're called. Called out of death, unto life. But there's also offices in the church or specific ministries such as Paul has spoken of, of his calling to the work as an apostle that we also see the calling to elders, to deacons, to other appointed servants or missionaries or appointed helpers along the way in the scriptures. Paul is stressing that we're not just talking, that we're not just taking in good truth and personally enjoying it and benefiting by it, but that the work of Christ in you and in your growing in these good and mighty truths is revealing themselves then in how you think and speak and act and prioritize your life. The late James Montgomery Boyce made this keen observation about this. It's a long quote. And I quote, There are some Christians who are primarily intellectual in nature. They love books, enjoy study, and delight in the exposition of the Bible's great doctrine, doctrinal passages. This is a good thing. It is proper to love doctrine and rejoice at what God has done for us in Christ. But the intellectual believer faces a great danger and often has a great weakness as a result of failing to overcome the danger. He loves doctrine so much that he stops with doctrine. He reads the first three chapters of Ephesians and delights in them. But when he comes to chapter 4, he says, oh, the rest of this is just application. I know all about that. Then he skips ahead to the next doctrinal section and neglects what he perhaps most needs to assimilate. On the other hand, some Christians are primarily oriented to experience. They thrive under the teaching found in the second half of this book. They want to know about spiritual gifts and their own exercise of them. They are excited about Paul's teaching about the family and other such things. This is where it's at for them. They find the doctrinal section dry and impractical. But you see, each of these is an error. Doctrine without practice leads to bitter orthodoxy. It gives correctness of thought without the practical vitality of the life of Christ. 
practice without doctrine leads to aberrations. It, it gives intensity of feeling, but it is feeling apt to go off in any and often wrong direction. What we need is both, as Paul's letters and the whole of Scripture teach us. We can never attach too much importance to doctrine, for it is about the doctrines of God, man, and salvation, that the direction and impetus for the living of the Christian life spring. At the same time, we can never attach too much importance to practice for it is the result of doctrine and proof of its divine nature. End quote. I ask you today to consider the calling in your life. Are you walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called? Does the output Match the input, church. Is it fitting? If not, what is out of sync and what needs to change is business you need to do today. If, it, if so, if your answer is yes, then what you need to keep doing and growing in both sound doctrine and as a result, faithful, obedient living that honors God. As we turn to the remainder of the letter, Paul is going to essentially flesh out two major themes of the worthy life. The first deals with characteristics that help unity among the believers. Oh, church, there's so much focus here on unity, proper protocol, and the high importance of fighting for our unity that Christ has bought us. The second deals with the characteristics of a God-honoring life in many different forms and places. In the rest of our time today, I want to look at the first descriptors of traits that promote unity among the brethren, as well as testimony that we indeed belong to Christ and that he is indeed at work within us. The first of these is humility. Look with me. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 2, with all humility. What is humility? John Calvin said this, It is evident that one never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. Church, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Humility is not thinking of yourself less, I'm sorry, is not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less. Humility is literally a willful lowliness. The word refers to the quality of esteeming ourselves as small, but at the same time recognizing the power and the ability of God at work in our lives. Humility rightly sees that everything that we are and have is because of grace. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What do you have to be prideful about, Christian? You are absolutely and completely saved by grace. Charles Hodge says, To be raised from the depths of degradation and misery and made the sons of God and thus exalted to an inconceivable elevation and dignity 
does and must produce humility and meekness. Where these effects are not found, we may conclude the exaltation has not taken place. Wow. Circle that, underline it, highlight it, and meditate on the sobering words of that quote. Beloved, see with me the truth that Mr. Hodge speaks here. When we really understand the absolute change of our condition before God, we are rightly and fully humbled. Are you truly humbled? Not just because it's the right answer, but humbled because the saving grace of God in your life has so moved you every day to see your absolute unworthiness of it. And the power now at work in you belongs to the Lord and the Lord's glory. What sobering words Mr. Hodge says at the end of this quote when he says, where these effects are not found, we may conclude the exaltation has not taken place. Beloved, may we see what Paul is saying in this turn in his letter. He's saying for three chapters, look at all of these gracious and wondrous things God has done to choose you, make you his, and now walk in all humility as a sign that you have been exalted in Christ alone. For the person who feels self-exalted is not a person who has been exalted in Christ. What we must do in this is not elevate our importance, our ego, but facilitate our gospel ministry for God's glory and others' good. This is Paul's point in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. In this church, see that humility is not self-esteem, but it is esteem in Christ. So you're not looking to have your cup filled by what others think of you or others' perception of you or your accomplishments. That's self-esteem. Your cup is filled by what Christ has done, who Christ is in you. Your esteem comes in Him. The enemy and this lost culture has taught us to value the opposite. They've taught us to value the feelings of being proud in our accomplishments or in our kids' accomplishments. So much so that this creeps in to the church. It creeps into our language and our thinking. As a result, we believe self-esteem is a good thing to grow in, to work on. We even teach our kids to esteem oneself, to have pride in oneself, to believe in oneself. The world says you need to have self-esteem. Church, no. No, you don't. This is toxic. This is sinful. This is the ways of man. This is the lies of the enemy. You need to have esteem in Christ alone. And to the degree you don't is the degree by which you struggle to live for His glory and not your own. To live out His commands and not your own. Your identity, Christian, must be in Christ. Your joy is in Christ. You live for God's glory and not your own. There is a true and global change in our disposition that God does in us when we trust in Christ and we die to ourselves. In this, we finally see that our best efforts, our most righteous accomplishments, deeds, of our flesh are like filthy rags and that Christ is everything and worthy of our lives, worthy of our praise. Listen to how Paul says this to the Galatians, Galatians 6.14. Far be it from me 
to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Another aspect of humility that we must see rightly is humility is the opposite of pride. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Think about that. To be proud is to fight God. God gives grace to the humble. Church, we don't need pride. We need grace. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Conceit, or other translations say vain conceit here, is translated or understood as empty glory. Do nothing from empty glory. Empty glory is our need, our flesh's need to be honored. The flesh's longing to be lifted up, to be complimented, to be thought highly of. Our need to be noticed, our our need to be enjoyed, our need to be loved, our need to feel important. It is when we want to go our way, and when it doesn't go our way, it's a problem. When we pursue self-esteem or vainglory, we position ourselves, watch this, around people who will flatter us with compliments that highlight our strengths and will withhold comments that point out our weaknesses. This brings us into a place of feeling entitled, deserving, important. The opposite is true as well. When we pursue self-esteem or vainglory, empty glory we we don't like to be around people who tell us the truth who will love us enough to say what needs to be said and help us see where we're missing the mark people who who pursue self-esteem often are more judgmental of others critical often are more showy. They will use relationships only long enough to advance themselves. Many times they struggle into relationships because they view themselves as above others. No one seems to meet their criteria of being worthy of them. And so I just ask you plainly, is this who you are? I won't ask you to raise your hand because the very principle of it, you won't, right? But maybe, maybe today, maybe the Holy Spirit's work at you is that you will. You'll go so far to confess the sin of it, to raise your hand publicly and say, it's me. To pull the lid off it and say, help me here. For many who struggle with the sin of pride or self-glory or self-exaltation, many, and often, they're truly unaware of it. So your self-analysis is greatly unhelpful. If this could be you, one of the first and best steps that you can take in confession or repentance is to genuinely cry out to God to show you this sin and then to sit with mature believers who will tell you the truth and really invite them in to help you see what maybe you don't see see that this kind of invitation to accountability watch this is humility at work in and of itself and the very rejection of that practice is the opposite it's pride Maybe you look back and you see some times where someone was trying to help come close and you pushed them back. It's your pride. You weren't ready. 
But if you see that now and you still never did anything with that, it's time to act on it. It's time to go back to that brother or sister. I'm sorry I pushed this away. Tell me what I need to hear. Let's do the work I need to do. I want to slay this pride. I want to walk in humility that honors my Lord. On the contrary, those who are humble, truly humble, are people most of us really love being around. They're people who tend to be team players. They're more understanding. They're slower to say something has to happen their way. This is also the kind of person that tends to be more compassionate and loyal. So why is it then that society so often chases after the opposite? Chasing after the self-centered person, the famous person, the pretty person, the successful and popular person. Church, we don't need self-glory. We need to glorify the one who is truly due all praise. We need to see the gospel in all its fullness so that we see we are guilty and hopeless in our sin outside of grace, outside of Christ, outside of His work in our place, outside of His righteousness laid upon us. Before we move on, consider again Paul's opening words in chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, see his view of his hardship as one of God-ordained providence, He doesn't loathe it. He embraces it. He doesn't say, woe is me. This is lame. I want a different hand. Get me out of this. He embraces it. He even glories in it. Why? Because he's so excited he belongs to Christ. Because it is his true privilege to serve God with his days. And if that means suffering in prison, so be it. Church, this is true humility. Where you die and Christ is exalted. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in true humility. Look with me what Paul urges the believers to walk in next. Gentleness. In all humility and gentleness. Gentle, or another word we see often in Scripture, essentially meaning the same thing, meek, is a word that expresses an attitude that is free from malice and revenge or vindictiveness. Understand, gentleness or meekness is not weakness. We see gentleness held up all throughout Scripture as a marker of real maturity and righteousness. A few places we see it in Holy Scripture. We see it in elder qualifications. 1 Timothy 3, 2-3, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. We see it also, church, in descriptions of God. Psalm 18.35, you have given me the shield of your strength, and your right hand have supported me, and your gentleness made me great. We see it also in the call of the Christian to be gentle, even when refuting false doctrine. Proverbs 15.1, a soft or gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I can't tell you how many times I've seen in my own life how this is true. And how many times I needed a brother or the word, the work of the Holy Spirit, to convict me before I spoke to have a gentle word instead of a fleshly, angered, put-off, self-righteous, vindicating myself kind of word. How dare you? Let me tell you what's real about this. 
and instead to die to self and come out with a gentle word often does exactly what this says it turns away wrath you disarm the people I once had a critical time in my pastoral ministry, had a very prominent family in our city send me a letter full of accusations largely based on gossip and mistruths. Oh, I wanted to proclaim from the rooftops how arid it was. And I was ready. I was ready to hit send. But a good brother in the Lord helped me to slow, to pray, to see how far I've come and how far I still need to go, and to seek the Lord. And so instead my words said, I'm a young man who's erred in much and needs to grow in much. By God's grace, I will do so. There are some things here that I believe are misunderstood, misstated, and I'd like the opportunity to sit with you if you desire to understand that. <sighs> Knowing that there's a good chance they would never take me up on that. They didn't. But their response was one where wrath was turned away. And I think the Lord is honored. If nothing else, it was a good work in my life in that moment. One I've not always repeated. I, I've missed the mark. But may we grow in this. May we help each other, as I was helped, be accountable. May we be slow to speak and quick to listen. It's often in discipleship, one of the things I'm walking with the guys that I'm training up, pointing to Christ, often it's something we often talk about is the need to slow down and not just respond in your flesh. First Peter 3.15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, church. Therefore, it's the evidence of Christ at work in you. It's not something you can do by just working harder. The conviction of the Spirit must happen. The influence of the Spirit to call it good and true and wise must go to work. It's something that God must produce in you. I will tell you that gentleness is so important for our relationships, especially those who are closest to us your spouse, your children, your parents, your family. How easy it is to be in the middle of a long and frustrating day and your kids or loved one just can't get it right, so you just resort to yelling from the couch, throwing something at a wall to get respect, to be heard. The reality is taking the gentle route, it takes more time. It requires more love and patience, but it truly builds a relationship and respects and respect that allows that relationship to go further. Parents see that gentleness in your parenting will go a long way to build better communication and respect with your child. Adults see that a gentle approach reveals a radical evenness of temper that puts the gospel on display in a way that a frustrated or harsh approach doesn't. Kids, see that gentleness is how you should treat your siblings and that it is only sin that causes you to be short and harsh and hurtful or upset at them. The best example I can give you of gentleness is the Lord Jesus himself. 
The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, said this of himself, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29 Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Think about this. The most exalted of all beings was the most gentle. Realize you can't produce gentleness on your own, but Jesus can produce it in you. Christ in you is the key to growing and maturing in your character that is more and more gentle. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Church, may Christ be at work in us to produce genuine gentleness in our words, our tone, our interaction with others. May we not see the gentle way as the weak way, but as the way of Christ in us. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in true gentleness. Let's look at what Paul urges the believers to walk in next. With patience. In all humility and gentleness. With patience. Patience here means long-suffering or long-souled. It means you don't get caught up or pinned down in the moment, but you're able to take a long-term view of the circumstance and of your life. You do this because you're settled in Christ and because you truly trust His perfect plan and process for your life. You have faith. The way Paul speaks of patience here is likened to perseverance or steadfastness which is the ability to remain calm under difficulties without giving in. You're patient. Patience is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, suffering, without getting angry or upset. You're patient. I've come to understand that patience is truly one of the most difficult things to practice well in our flesh. For many here today, you may go so far to say that a lack of patience is maybe one of the things you struggle with most in life. So let's slow to consider why this is the case. The biggest reason is because our fleshly nature is impatient and wants what it wants, and we want it now. Think with me about things that you go through every day, throughout your day. Little things that if you don't have real patience, really upset your day, upset your mood. For example, patience for the food to cook. Patience to save up enough money to buy the thing you want. Patience for the thing that that person promised would be done. Patience for the kids to grow out of the current phase they're in. And on and on, right? I mean, we could just... There's another layer. What about patience for lifelong things? Patience for a loved one to repent or finally see what they have been missing. Patience for an area of life that you have always struggled with and can't seem to find your way to resolve it or put it away. Patience maybe with health issues. I mean, there are lifelong things that require not short-term patience, but long-term patience. But here's the thing. God expects His redeemed people to practice patience no matter what we face. 
those who walk by faith in Christ don't throw their arms up and say, I'm done. I'm out of patience. They keep on. No matter how hard it is or how long it takes, because they have true and lasting patience in Christ. Like gentleness, true patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Meaning it's not just something you produce on your own. Man-made patience is temporary. It's forced. It's possible, but it's not going to last. It's not going to be a a true characteristic of who you are. If you want true patience, you are desperate for the Spirit to be at work in you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. You do not grow spiritual fruit, Christian. You must first be saved. You must first know Jesus as Lord to confess your sin and to trust your life to Jesus and be saved. That must happen first. And then and only then does the Spirit of God begin to grow fruit in you. Christian growth, our focus needs to be into Christ, into the vine. It is the Lord then, the Spirit of the Lord, who changes us from the inside out and produces the fruit of the Spirit. We must trust in Christ. We must wait on Christ. We must practice patience in the fact that we know it all belongs to Christ and we know that He's at work. We practice patience, church, because this is not our home. It's temporary. It's momentary. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 Do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. There's a great old testimony that goes like this. A young Christian asked one of his elders to pray that he would have more patience. The elder said, let's pray right now. Put his hand on the young man's shoulder and said, Lord, please send this young man great tribulation. Not wanting to be rude. Also not wanting the elder to continue in such a prayer. The young man reached out to the elder and touched him and said, excuse me, maybe you misheard me. I didn't ask you to pray for tribulation in my life. I wanted you to pray for patience. The elder replied, no, no, I heard you correctly. Haven't you read Romans 5, 3? Where Paul says, we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. James joins in the exhortations by showing that patience is often a product of the Holy Spirit refinement brought to us in hard times. James chapter 1, 2 through 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Beloved, do not detest hardships, but know that they will test your faith, but that this is a good thing. Because faith that is tested is not faith that is still or stagnant. It is faith at work. It is faith that produces steadfastness and patience. It is not faith that subsides or wanders off, but faith that stays. It finishes. It perseveres. Let me ask you, has your faith been tested? And when it was, what did you do? See, many people call themselves Christians. They do so because they grew up in church or because they had a spiritual moment where they walked an aisle or said a prayer. 
But that's about all their faith journey has meant. When they were truly tested, they walked away. When their commitment to serve God became too hard, they went back to serving themselves. But faith that is true faith in God, faith that saves, is not a momentary thing. It is not a box to be checked. It is new birth. It is a commitment to die to the old and live faithfully for God. It is a faith whereby you are all in. True faith stands in the face of great trials and hardship. True faith is a commitment to and a trust in God that is not just a part of someone's life. Too many have just added Jesus to their life, put him next to the other commitments and priorities of their life. But Jesus is not someone who will be added to your other priorities. He's not someone we negotiate with to share our other affections with. No, when we truly see and savor Him and commit ourselves to Him, when God gives us saving faith, and that faith comes face to face with incredible obstacles of hardship and even suffering, we stand fast. We endure. We cling to Him all the more. We don't exchange Him for something else. Remember with me the teaching of James in James 5, 10, and 11. As, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord into mind, he's saying. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. If you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful to those who have truly trusted Jesus as Lord James says you know these truths in Christ do not let them out of your sight is what he's doing here one major tool to help our faith remain at work even in the midst of great trial and suffering even in long seasons of patience is to consistently be reoriented to the truth of God's Word, the Gospel. To be reminded of who God is and what He has promised, and to be reminded of what He's already done. And to do this again and again and again. This is why the preaching of the Word in your life is so important. This is why the study of the Word in your life Every day is so important. Why you invite the local church into your life to walk with you so that they can reorient you to Christ again and again and again until we finish the race. May we say with James, may what James says in James 1.4 be true of us all. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Church, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in true patience. May we heed these exhortations Paul gives the church in Ephesus. May we take them home and meditate on them this week. May we go to prayer and dive into God's Word and invite others to help us evaluate where we are and where we need to grow. May we do all this for the glory of God and the good of those that God ordains to put in our path. Next week we look to the second part of verse 2 and verse 3 as we see the next three attributes of one who is walking in a worthy manner. Love, unity, and peace. Church, stand with me, pray with me, sing to the Lord with me. Father, we thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for all that you are and all that you have done for your saving grace, for your patience and gentleness with us, for the humility of Christ, for without which his life, death, and resurrection, we have no hope. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit's work in us. Your ordained work through the preaching of the Word 
to speak to us individually, specifically, to convict us, motivate us, and move us out of the place by which we were in when we arrived and unto new depths of maturity and God-glorifying living, unto new layers of unity and peace in the relationships that we find ourselves in. Father, do your mighty work in us as we seek your face, as we look to live our days for your glory. Oh God, we are desperate for you. May our hope be built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Help us to not trust in the sweetest frame, but to wholly lean on Jesus' name. You are our rock. You are our deliverer. You are our power. And it is for your glory that we sing and live. In Jesus' name we pray.